the beginning of a new year, it seems like with every passing year, becomes less of a big deal. And so it kind of takes something jarring to make me think, hey, actually some things happened in this last year and in these last 10 years. Because it's easy to just go, oh, life is the way that it's always been. But when we begin to look back on the last 10 years, it's easy to like begin to go, oh, life has changed a whole lot. 10 years ago, the iPhone 4 was released, and most of us in this room didn't have smartphones. And didn't really, if you're like me, didn't think that we would ever have a smartphone. Hey, a computer is just fine for me. Give me a camera and a flip phone and I'll be good. Companies have changed. Companies have been started. Companies that, and businesses that we use every day have been started in the last 10 years. And so we can just kind of begin to go, Google Maps hasn't always been around. And we, we, we can just think, oh, we're going into a new year and the next 10 years will be like the last 10 years. But being at the 2020 mark helps us actually go, oh, lots has changed in the last 10 years. If I look back 10 years, we had been married for about two and a half years. I'm probably totally wrong with my math. But we had been married for about two and a half years and had one baby. And in the last 10 years, we had five more. In the last 10 years, I went from having four grandparents to one grandparent. We've had cars break down. We've had businesses fail. We've had jobs change. We've moved houses. We've bought a house. We've, been on cra we've had crazy dreams to do this or to do that. The last 10 years has actually been a time of major change. And so when we come to 2020 and we go, oh, here's my goals for the next year, or here's where I think the next 20 years goes, I often go, do any of us include in our New Year's resolutions things like, how am I going to grieve the death of a loved one? How, how am I going to handle a job change? How am I going to handle dealing with depression in the next 10 years myself, or depression with somebody in my household? An estranged relationship. So when we begin to actually take a look at the last 10 years, not just the last 10 years successes, but the last 10 years diagnosis, the last 10 years challenges, the last 10 years pain, if you're like me, we can begin to look forward at the next 10 years and go, how am I, how can I be confident at all in, in the next 10 years? If, if the next 10 years has a diagnosis like the last 10 years has had, I don't know that I can handle it. Where can I get the confidence? to go into something like that. If the next 10 years has the kind of relationship problems the last 10 years have had, I don't know how I'm going to do it. If the next 10 years involves the kind of depression that the last 10 years have had, I don't know that I can handle it. Today we're going to be looking at one of my favorite stories in the Old Testament that, that talks about this idea, where do I get confidence? Not just confidence that I can lose weight and look better and make something more of my career, but how can I get confidence in the face of looming battles, that I don't know that I have the strength to win, to fight, that my strategies aren't going to get me there. Go ahead and turn with me to 2 Kings. 2 Kings chapter eight, chapters 18 and 19. Second Kings chapters 18 and 19. Center on the king Hezekiah. Now at, at this point in the Bible's history, David and Solomon are in the rearview mirror. David and Solomon were the high point of Israel's kingship. And after that point, the kingdom of Israel splits in two. So then there's a kingdom of Israel to the north that has the ten tribes. 
And I call them the big brother because they have the riches and they have the power and they have the land. And then little brother Judah is to the south. And so the story picks up, the story in 2 Kings picks up. So Israel with all of their bad kings are in the north. Hezekiah is the king of two tribes down in Judah. And 2 Kings chapter 18 verse 1 picks up with, in the third year of Hoshea, Hoshea, son of Elah, king of Israel, Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abi, the daughter of Zechariah, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that David, his father, had done. He removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah poles, and he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made for until those days, the people of Israel had made offerings to it. It was called Nehushtan. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. Some of the details that start out here are actually really important. We can just, they just kind of seem like headers on his kingship. But Israel never had a good king. After David and Solomon and the kingdoms broke up, the the the. The kings of Israel were all bad, every last one of them. But Judah had a few good kings and a lot of bad kings. And Hezekiah, it says, was the very best of the kings of Judah because his heart was fully towards the Lord. And so this story starts with this righteous king, this righteous king that loves God, that cuts down the poles where people worship idols, then he gets attacked. Let's pray before we begin. Father, as we open your word, help me to speak it clearly. God, as we look at a new year and a new decade and we don't know what it holds, as we can be scared, as we can be worried, as we can be angry, as we can try and grip and control it, God, help us to see that you delight in saving helpless people because it puts you on display in Jesus' name. Amen. So Hezekiah is king. And the kingdom of Assyria, which is a, a massive kingdom off to the east, the key, their king was named Sennacherib. Kids, try and write that down. Uh, the, their king was named Sennacherib, and he would wipe out whole peoples. And because Israel had never had a good king, God sends the kingdom of Assyria, Sennacherib, against Israel, and he wipes them from history. We never see these tribes of Israel ever again. Occasionally somebody will, t I'll hear, oh, I heard that so-and-so was from the tribe of so this and that. But to the best that I understand, Assyria was so good at wiping, these wiping this nation out that these tribes are never seen again. And so the rest of the Bible ends up being stories and the, the story of the kingdom of Judah that God is keeping his promise through. But so the king of Assyria goes in, wipes out the kingdom of Israel, and then he turns his attention to Judah. And the, the big part of the story comes later, but at the very first, what we see in verses 9 through uh, 18 is that when the king of Assyria turns his attention to Hezekiah, Hezekiah takes all of the silver from the treasury and from the temple and gives it over to pay off the king of Assyria which is kind of an unusual thing for the wisest and best and most godly king that Judah ever had to do what he did. So he pays off the king of Assyria, giving up 
his very last plan. Hey, I've given all my treasure now to this king. So when the king of Assyria comes back later and says, I want more, Hezekiah has nothing. Hezekiah at this point has already given everything that he's got, his backup plans and everything. He's looked at the the kingdom to the north that's stronger and richer than he is and has seen that they've been wiped and off the face of the earth. And so we, we don't understand this story if we don't realize that Hezekiah is actually helpless at this moment. Not only is a, a, a kingdom attacking him, but he's already spent his backup. He's already used it. And so what we see is, verse 17, and the king of Assyria sent the Tartan, a guy named Rabshakeh, uh, with the great army from Lachish to Hezekiah in Jerusalem. And when they went up, they came to Jerusalem. They arrived and they stood by the conduit of the upper pool, which is on the way to the washer's field. And when they called for the king, there came out to them, not Hezekiah, but Eliakim, who was over the household, and the secretary and the recorder. And this, this is his title, Rabshakeh, said to them, Say to Hezekiah, thus says the great king of Assyria, On what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? In whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? Behold, you are trusting now in Egypt, that broken reed of a staff which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust him. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is not he who is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah and to Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar in Jerusalem. Come now, make a wager with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses if you are able to put uh, on your part to set riders on them. So what ha- So the king of Assyria is sending his representatives to the representatives of King Hezekiah. And he says, on what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? This entire exchange becomes the, the servants of the king of Assyria saying, thus says the king. And the servants of Hezekiah saying, thus says the Lord. The, the servants of Hezekiah say, please don't speak in the language of the Hebrews because we don't want people to hear what you have to say. And they call out, we want them to hear this because when we're finished with you, the, the only thing you'll have to eat is your own dung and the only thing you'll have to drink is your own urine. We want you to be afraid. These people cannot trust in their king and they cannot trust in their God. And so the servants of Hezekiah, go to Hezekiah, and they report to him these words, and then he sends them to the prophet Isaiah. They send them to the prophet Isaiah with the message from the king of Assyria, and Isaiah says, uh, they said to him, thus says Hezekiah, this day is a day of distress, of rebuke and of disgrace. Children have come to the point of birth, and there is no strength to bring them It may be that the Lord your God heard all the words of the Rabshakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to mock the living God, and will rebuke the words that the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. When the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah, Isaiah said to them, Say to your master, thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard, with which the servants of the king of Assyria have reviled me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him, so that he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. And so Isaiah says, this is what God says, that I am actually going to defeat the king of Assyria. So Hezekiah goes and they report that they are not going to turn themselves over. They're not going to give themselves over to the king of Assyria, to Sennacherib. 
And then Sennacherib threatens them even more with a letter. And so Hezekiah takes the letter, goes to the temple, and he puts it out before the Lord. And he says, God, look what they're saying. Look at what the king of Assyria has said. And I love Hezekiah's prayer. Because Hezekiah says, because Hezekiah prays and says, So now, O Lord our God, save us, please, from this hand, his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. So this, this entire battle, this entire exchange, becomes a battle of words. The king of Assyria saying, Thus says the king. And Hezekiah and Isaiah and the servants saying, Thus says the Lord. And Hezekiah understands, as he lays out the words of the king of Assyria before the Lord, that it's actually God's reputation that's on the line. And so the, the story tells us that there's a threat. And so the king of Assyria, Sennacherib, goes home and he's worshiping in the temple and his sons kill him. And so he dies. And the, the, this story is this story of Hezekiah hearing the message of the king, hearing the message of the Lord, laying it out before the Lord and God delivering Judah. And what I want to show you, I want to show you three lessons that we learned from this story. The the first lesson is that each one of us is called to trust God's words because they are going to be attacked this year and this new decade. This this passage calls us to trust in God's word in the battle because the, the challenge that the king of Assyria brings to Hezekiah, on what do you rest this trust of yours, is the question that will be asked of you and I daily, weekly, monthly, and every year in the coming decade. Each one of us is going to be asked, on what do you rest this trust of yours? Is there some strategy that you have? Is there some friend that you have? Is there this bank account that you have that is going to somehow provide and protect you in this coming decade as you face retirement, as we don't know what happens in the economy, as your family crumbles, as your health disintegrates? On what in this new year are you going to trust? Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? The lesson that each one of us has to learn from this story is that this is not the only time this appears, but in every story in the Bible, there is this attack. Did God really say, and can you really trust it? Isn't that what we see in the garden when The serpent comes to Eve and says, did God really say? Isn't that what we see when Satan comes to tempt Jesus in the wilderness and he takes God's words and he twists them and says, we can do this another way. This is going to be the thing that you and I are going to face. God's words are going to be attacked. So are we going to stand with Hezekiah and take out the letters of the enemies? Are we going to take out the lies and the promises and the enticements are we going to say, look, look at these plans, God. Look at these things. God, I want to trust what you have to say. The message you and I will hear is, did God really say that God's commands are going to be attacked? No, we can follow Jesus and we can break this command. We can follow this leader. We can go this way. Not only are God's commands going to be attacked, but his promises are going to be attacked. As you and I face despair and depression, as we face overwhelming anxiety and fear, the words of God, I will never leave you or forsake you, are going to be attacked. The Lord is my shepherd is going to be attacked. No, God is actually not shepherding you. He's lost you along the way. He's forgotten you. God's gone to sleep. 
It's going to be attacked in this next year and in this next decade. And so the call to us from this passage is to, with Hezekiah and with Isaiah and with the servants, to say, yes, we hear your, we hear your threats and we hear your promises and we hear your enticements. But we believe that God's words are weapons and strategies for war. The task for churches in the coming year and in the coming decade is going to be say, well, what, what strategy, what, what method, what thing could we do that will somehow bring God's kingdom? And so we begin to adjust things to make them happen ourselves. In the coming decade, we're called to say, no, God's words are weapons and strategy for war. We, we can go to war with this. We will take this and hold it tight to this, not to our own strategies and not to our own personalities and so the first lesson that we learn from this story is to trust God's word in battle. The second thing that we learn from this is to trust God who delights to save those with no backup plans. This, this story calls us to trust that God's heart is not reluctant, that nobody's twisting God's arm, but that God loves the fact that Hezekiah is backed up against a wall, and so the only person that could save him is God. So God gets all the credit. That was Hezekiah's prayer as he prayed and said, God, for your name's sake, save us. So, O Lord, save us, please, from his hands so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. That's what we see in verse 20, uh, chapter 19, verse 28. Because you have raged against me and your complacency has come into my ears, I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth and will turn you back on the way in which you came. God is actually, God is actually delighting to rescue Hezekiah, who's already spent everything that he's got. His back is against the wall and there's no way to go on. And so the call to us is, can we trust his heart? Can we trust that the God whose heart was to save Hezekiah and the people of Judah is going to, in this next year and in this coming decade, have a heart of compassion and love towards us. You see, there's a, a, the major difference between Israel and Judah, both faced with the same enemy, is that Israel never loved the Lord, never turned to the Lord, never wanted God's fame and God's name to go out. And Judah and Hezekiah said, God, for your name's sake, will you rescue us? God, we love you and we are going to serve you and we are going to tear down the idols that are in our hearts and in our lives. God, will you rescue? And Israel constantly set up their own kingdoms and their own ways and said, we will protect ourselves. And so as we go into a new year, and you have no backup plans for the tragedies that are to come. In this new decade, you have no backup plans to fight some of the things that are going to come. Will you trust God's heart this next year? Will you trust that God hasn't changed, that he delights to pour himself out to save those with no backup plans, that he's not ignoring you, he's not ignoring the things that you've asked him to do in your life. His heart is to save people just like you and just like me. So the, the call in this next year is, can we make our homes before the Lord, spreading out the lies that we hear, the temptations that we face, and say, God, can you save me? I don't have strategies to do this. I can't provide for myself. I can't dig myself out of this hole. God, God will you pour yourself out? And the third lesson that we learned in this is that God is the center of this story. One of the things we do at our at the table at our house is one of the kids will often bring up a book we've read together or a movie that we've watched, and they'll say, who is this story about? And at first, I was like, well, it's obvious. And now that it's happened a bunch of times, and they'll name a movie, and I'll be like, well, it's about 
the guys in the title, or it's about the person in the title, or it's about the person that's on screen the most. What I've come to realize is that we often like go, well, it could be about those guys because of this, but it also could be about this guy. You, you know, the, the center of the story could be the kids and not the grown-ups because the kids are the ones that are growing and changing and doing the rescue. And we, we have these discussions about who's the center of the story. So then when we read this passage, 2 Kings 18 and 19, the question is, who's it about? Is it about Hezekiah? Is, it, is Hezekiah the, the, the hero and we're supposed to buckle down and become like Hezekiah? Be, be like Hezekiah, who won victory even though the people of Israel didn't, King of Judah did, and you too can be like Hezekiah. Is it really about Hezekiah? Or is the center of this story actually God? God is actually the center of the story because it's his name that's on the line. It's his kingdom that's going to go forth. It's his promises that are actually at risk because the king of Assyria is not just threatening king of Judah and the kingdom of Judah is actually threatening the promises of God. And this story, like every story in the Bible, and like your story, is actually God's story. It's not about how God is an accessory to fulfill our lives and make things happen. It's actually the story of the great God of the universe, bursting with joy to create the world and to save sinners like you and me. That's actually what the story is about. And so this story calls us to say, you know what? 2020 is really not about me. It's not about how I handle grief. It's not about how I handle risk. It's not about how I retire or don't retire. It's not about how I do my job. 2020 is actually about what God is doing in the world to build his kingdom, to delight himself with sinners like you and me, to delight himself with sinners like the people living on my block and living in my house. And so I'm actually called to see that this year and this decade is actually God's story, and I am stepping in to what he is doing. I am stepping into this great story that God is telling where he saves the sinners and he rescues those whose back is against the wall, whose words and his promises are good enough to depend on. God is actually the center of this story. And in the new year, God is the center of my story. Not me and my problems. Not me and my hopes and dreams. Not you and your difficulties. Not you and the stories that you tell yourself about yourself. 2020 is God's story. So we read this and say, okay, I'm supposed to trust God's word. It's worth it to go to battle. I can trust God's heart. God is the center of this story. But in reality, I'm the one that constantly puts myself at the center of the story. I'm the one that, unlike Hezekiah, actually raises up things and objects and situations and dreams that I worship. I'm the one that raises up idols before, the, before God and says, look at what I'm building. I'm more like the kings of, Assyria, of Israel and more like the king of Assyria than I am like Hezekiah. So where is the good news for people like you and for me? Where's the good news for people like us? The good news is that one day there would come a king who would trust God's word, who would use God's word to go into battle with Satan in the wilderness, who would use it to correct him and to rebuke him. He is the one that would delight in God's salvation, who from the cross calls out, Father, why have you forsaken me? Looking to God for salvation. He's the one who put God at the center of the story and was killed in your place and in my place so that our record becomes we have trusted in God's word in battle. We've been tested by Satan and we've trusted it. 
We are the ones that know we don't have to have backup plans because God can feed us. God can save us. God can protect us no matter what storms come. The record that you and I now carry is of somebody who has seen God as the center of the story. And so we go into the year not hoping, well, maybe I can be a little bit better in 2020 than I can be in the last. Instead, we can say we have the perfect record of Jesus. And so now with the delight of the Father, we can trust that God, the center of the story, is actually working for our good, who is pleased with us and has given us his promises, not as burdens to bear, but as things to trust him. We can make our homes with him. You say, Joe, how can I know that for sure? You talk often about the record. The record of Jesus becomes our record. How does the record of Jesus become our record? The record of Jesus becomes our record as we repent of sin and trust in Christ. The essence of all sin is this raising ourselves up and saying, no, God, we will not trust you. We will not follow you. We will not obey you because we do not love or trust you. So in repentance and trust, we actually... Ignore that. We set that aside and say, no, no, Jesus is the one that we love and that we trust, and we can be pleasing to God only as we trust in him and are found in him. So, then we can, we can be the ones that delight and trust that God delights to save us. And then we can begin to imagine, what does that look like in our families in 2020? As unfortunately, more of us are going to see tragedy than just victory after victory. More of us are going to struggle and limp along and say, God, what are you doing? This story tells us that this is actually God's story. And so we can begin to battle against the lies. We can battle against the despair. We can battle against the the lie that God does not care about us with this truth. And that can change everything. It can change everything for a family. It can change everything for a person who begins to say, okay, yes, this is hopeless, but I have a God who's writing a story and I can trust him, and I can trust his heart this year, and I can trust his promises, and so I'm going to put one foot in front of the other, and that can change a family, and that can change a person, and that can change a situation, and that can change grief, and that can change loss, and that can change anxiety, and that can change fear, and that can change pride and stubbornness, and that gives us confidence. I started with how, do we, how can we be confident people, confident families, a confident church? We can be confident because the God that's at the center of the story of 2020. Let's pray. God, we love you. We thank you that you have given yourself to us, and I ask, Lord, that we build our lives around you, that we enjoy you in 2020 and in this coming decade, that we find our confidence at your feet, and we find confidence in your word. In Jesus' name.